step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height Hello, this is Albert Rosenzweig. I am the host of Hat Radio. This is episode 59, and I'm delighted to be here with Tara Sloan. Tara, how you doing? Hey. Um, <laughs> that question doesn't mean what it used to mean, I think. Um, you know, ultimately, I'm doing just fine. Yeah. Now, Tara Sloan is a rock star, and uh, she is the co-host of a very important show on TV called Hometown Hockey. A co-host with Ron McLean, somebody that I've interviewed here on Had Radio. So first off, I want to thank you very much for finding the time to be with us today. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, absolutely. So, how, how is life in isolation? Um, you know, I I would say the overarching uh, theme is gratitude. You know, I I think that I have a, a family that's all together. I have. Um, a roof over my head and our heads. Uh, we have food to eat, and we, my extended family, everybody has their health. So, you know, I, I always think of it first that way. <laughs> but then, of course, you get down to the reality and the, the nitty gritty of homeschooling a child, which is a challenge trying to work at the same time. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's up and down for us, like it is for everybody. It's it's scary and uncertain and at times filled with um, a lot of pain and suffering. And then there's also the, the possibility that something positive can come out of all of it. Are, are you good at homeschooling? No, I am not. Neither am I. No, I'm not. It's, uh, it's been a unique challenge. And I would say, you know, I think some kids are probably well suited to it. I, I'm gonna, I, not that I blame my child, because I certainly blame, uh, us Sounds more. like you're blaming your child. <laughs> I just, you know, I, for her, I just think she is really, she's hurting, you know, her la the lack of peer interaction. Um, because school is certainly not just about the school part. School is about the social interaction. And for her, that environment, I think, actually helps her learn. Um, so sitting down, sort of doing this concentrated schooling on the computer is like really not, is not her thing. And it's hard for us to manage. You know, one of the things I've learned about myself during this isolation is that on one hand, I quite like it. I myself, I'm agoraphobic, but I still miss socializing. I still miss hugging my family. Sure. But the space that we've managed to get through COVID-19 and the byproduct of sometimes being alone, um, there's something very rich about that. What about the meditative times that you have? How, how do those work out for you? Well, I think, you know, initially it was just, it's a, a big wake-up call because you see how fast you've been moving um, and perhaps, you know, for me, um, how much that movement helps me avoid sitting down and just being. Yeah. So. In, in a way, it's very healthy to, to stop and 
it has sort of helped me um, refocus a little bit and prioritize better and, you know, re-engage in a med- an actual meditation practice, which has always been part of my life, um, but tends to kind of get pushed by the wayside sometimes. So Yes, yeah, so I, I was fascinated by the fact that you were born in Montreal mm-hmm. to what you call hippie parents. Yes. <laughs> right? Ultimately, you made your you made your way further east out to Halifax. So I guess you're somewhat of a Haligonian. I would I would identify yeah. Montreal is a hometown for me, but Halifax is my hometown. Right. Yes. And your parents were very much into Buddhism, so you would come home at lunch, and you would go through a meditative process. Mm-hmm. Well, which yeah. be, right? So, yeah, no, which, I did. How, how was that for you? This I mean, you were born in 1973. So I'm not sure there were a lot of meditators around, certainly not vis-a-vis today. No, God, no. People thought it was really weird. I mean, you know, frankly, I was embarrassed. I, so my family, like, we were Buddhist, like, act, not just meditators, but Buddhists. So there's Buddhist iconography around, and we had a shrine room, um, which is a room where you meditate and do various practices, and there are, you know, there's a shrine, so there's stuff on it, there's... pictures of deities and gurus and it's very strange if you are unfamiliar um, with some of that and some of the ceremony of it Um, so you know for me growing up in the 80s and in particular in my elementary school years um, I was in Wolfville, Nova Scotia population 5,000 so we were definitely identified as like as the Buddhist family and that was a weird thing. And yeah, it was, I mean, in a way, I mean, I'm super grateful for it now, but I, I was sheepish about it back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, my friends knew some stuff about it. They would hear, <laughs> there are some advanced Buddhist practices that use bells and kind of drums. So like you could hear my mom and stepfather doing these practices up from the window which was super embarrassing for me. But I would come home at lunch and I would meditate for 10 minutes, which was unusual. And was it helpful at that age? Can one meditate meditate at a young age? (laughs) I think you can touch in with it. I mean, you know, in a way, it's not that different from like some of the meditation sessions I do now, which are like 99.9% thought in, you know, maybe touch in for a couple of breaths. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 about training, and so, like, at a certain point, there's no point, there's no point, right? Like going past a few minutes as with a kid is just it really, right? You're not doing anything other than fidgeting. Um, but no, I I learned. I meditate with my son sometimes, and about halfway through, I'll kind of open my eye a little bit, and his eyes are wide open. Yeah. He's yeah. he's 14 years old. He's not interested, right? No. But I mean, you know, it might be something that he calls upon later in, in his life um, for something that might be helpful to him. Yeah. You said that when you were with this Canadian rock band, very high profile, that sometimes you would sit in the back of the bus after a very onerous tour. And you said, literally, I would take 10 minutes, gather my thoughts, center myself, and that gave me the impetus or the energy to carry on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, like sometimes we all need a reset, you know. And um, the being on on the road with the band was uh, it's just go go go. And so I think we we all need that. And so for me, actually, that I had a very regular practice when when I was on the road with Joy Buck. Did you share it with others? I know you've talked about um, a particular coach. Um, who actually became very meditative themselves, and that was uh, Pete Carroll, I believe. Oh, yeah. From Seattle Seahawks, and he shared that with the rest of his team. Did you do that with the band? Um, I, I mean, we certainly talked about it. I never led them in meditation. Tony, our drummer, had his, did his own meditation practice. He's a transcendental meditation practitioner. Um, you know, we all kind of had our different ways of uh, recharging and disconnecting, so... No, I would have, though, I mean, if they had they asked. Um, when I was on Rockstar in Excess, this was a reality show I did in 2005 in L.A., uh, I did lead a few meditation sessions there. So, I mean, if people people are interested, um, but I definitely don't sort of hawk my wares in that department. Until, it's, it's, well, until until now. I mean, I, I, do, I, I do lead Instagram meditation sessions now on Monday mornings. I've seen them. Yeah. But, um, you know, that felt like it was a way to be of, of benefit during this time. But usually it's, yeah, it's just, it's not something, I'm certainly not embarrassed about it anymore. But, uh, you know, I, mean, I just don't offer my services. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's so tough growing up and being different almost in any way and in any subtle way. When I was growing up in Kitchener, Ontario, I um, was the rabbi's son. My father was an Orthodox rabbi, and at five years old, I wore a kippah, a yarmulke, a head covering. And I used to get chased and yelled at, and I was scared out of my mind. And I came home, and I told my father, at six years old, I'm not wearing my kippah anymore. I'm just too different, um, and I didn't feel safe. It's very interesting is that kids want to be seen like everybody else. Mm -hmm. So you lived in this small town out east. Like, would you bring girlfriends home and... Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah. the, the yeah, I, I mean, at, at various times I would have um, various excuses. Like I remembered when I was in junior high school, and actually I was living in Toronto at that time for a couple of years. I remember telling people that there was a weird Buddhist group that had rented our basement. Is that what you said? Yeah. It's fantastic. So it's a like completely lied. Um, but no, I mean, you know, uh, we were the, everybody knew we were the Buddhist family, so... Um, the shrine room was closed, so nobody would walk in there anyway. But no, people knew. How hippie were your parents? Um, they were very hippie when when they were hippies. They were very hippie. They they uh, went to Woodstock together, so I think Did that, they? that qualifies. Them as super yes, hippies. it does. Yes, um, it does. And then you know the, their sort of path to Buddhism was they were in Montreal as in you know as people in their early 20s and uh, at the time the famous radio station Shom was actually not a rock station but Shom was named after Om like the, the seed syllable Om and Shom would play a lot of um, recordings of various teachers and spiritual people and so they heard Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche who was uh, one of the first Tibetan Lama's teachers to come to the west and that's where they heard him for the very first time was on Shom. And so they followed this path. They ended up at a monastery in Scotland. 
uh, kind of living off the land and doing Buddhist practice. That that's where I was conceived. Um, so yeah, they definitely were they were hippies. <laughs> so Tara, in your soul, inside, as you identify with yourself, we all see ourselves in a certain way. I see myself as a Jew. I do. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as a Buddhist? Oh yeah, I am. I mean, I am a Buddhist. I um, I've taken vows of refuge. Um, I certainly, I mean, it's sort of how I grew up. It's it's encompassed sort of everything. It's a big part of sort of my language, the the language I speak in, the language I think in. Um, Yeah, but I will say this, that my my dad's side of the family is is Jewish. So I'm technically a Jew-boo. Um, as we so referred to, you celebrate Passover, do you? I, if I'm with that side of the family, yeah. so I mean, I don't identify as a Jew, but I, I, um, you know, I, I'm also really enjoy that part of my heritage. Well, what do you enjoy about it? Family, most of all. I mean, it's certainly what I associate with gatherings, and um, my grandparents were. You know, devout Jews, so they—that was sort of where that side of of me um, was allowed to be part of it. You know. Yeah. So, but yeah, for me, it's it's family. I mean, that's sort of when I can see everybody. I mean, I still—I was at Passover last year. I was at a seder last year. How was it? It was great. It was big. <laughs> was it big? What stood out for you? At the seder or in general? Let's say uh, that I like particular seder. I like both questions, but yes. Um. Well, I mean, I guess you know. I again, it's it's the same answer. It's it's family. You know, I think it's nice to have a common identity, um, and feel a sense of safety and security uh, within that, and and sort of celebrate it, um, and course not not be xenophobic within it right that's an important distinction is not not to compare your self-identity to others but of course it's we we celebrate these things that we have in common um i didn't really have that as a as a buddhist so much growing up you know a community um i did later on but so it was just a yeah it it sort of it's something you i could try on and wear a little bit as a kid that I didn't have elsewhere. And so the say you know, for me, the, going back to my cousin's house and being at a Seder, I mean, first of all, it's a chance for me to be around family that I don't get to see a whole ton, but also, you know, be proud of that identity that I don't get to wear all the time. What, what were your grandparents like? And what were their names? My, on that side, my dad's yeah, the parents. Jewish side, yeah. So my, it's a very Jewish show, by the way. Yeah, okay, well then, good. <laughs> Uh, so my grandfather's name was Morton Sloan, and uh, he was born in Ottawa. He was a, an electrical engineer, ended up in Montreal after going to Queen's University. Um, and so his father, Abraham Slonemski, was, yeah. uh, was a dentist in Ottawa. Um, my grandmother, her name was Phyllis. She was born gold, so Phyllis Gold became Phyllis Sloan. Um, she was a school teacher for a short time, but once she had kids, she had my uncle and father, she stayed home. 
Um, I, I speak of her a lot. I mean, I was very close to both of them. Um, but I speak of her a lot because she, well, I mean, she, I spent a lot of time with her and she was very, very special to me. I called her Precious because yeah. she, when I was little, she called me Precious and I think I just mimicked her. Um, but I often tell a story of her. She was, uh, her parents were from um, Ukraine and Bessarabia. We were on shuttles and ended up moving to Montreal. Um, so she, she and her siblings were born in Montreal in the teens and 20s. Um, my grandmother was a twin. She had an older sister and an older brother. And at the time when she was growing up, as you know, there were many universities in this country that had quotas on Jews. Yes. So my great uncle, Uncle Alan, had applied to McGill University, did, right. did not get in, ended up at the University of Montreal. Um, my grandmother applied to McGill and did get in. Oh, she did. But she was not allowed to go, unfortunately. Her father thought that academia was not the appropriate route for a young woman at that time. Um, my uncle, Alan, went on to become the um, Chief Justice of the Superior Court of Quebec. So ah, he showed that. The first uh, first Jew on this, the Superior Court. Um, but he always told the story that his sister Phyllis, my grandmother, was by far the smartest one in the family. Really? Yeah. And, you know, she I think of her often because she was not allowed to pursue the the route that she wished to pursue. And so Can you imagine can you imagine that, Tara? No, but I and it's but it's like it's you know, that era's not even in my family it's come to a close. Certainly not the case for everyone. And I don't but I don't take it for granted. I, I feel very fortunate that I've had privilege. I feel very fortunate that I've had supportive family and parents and a, and a good, safe situation where I've been able to, to do things um, on my terms. But I, yeah, so I, I refer to her, to Precious. Um, I think of her often. And what did you call your grandfather? Papa. <laughs> so there's no booby and Zadie then? No. 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 Just, uh, yeah, it was, I don't know why it was that way. My dad, of course, called his Booby and Zadie. But. Right, right. You're listening to Had Radio. This is episode 59. My name is Avram Rosenzweig. I'm delighted to have you. And my guest today is Tara Sloan. Tara is uh, what we call a Canadian rock star. <laughs> I, like all ro- I, like, I like all rock stars. <laughs> I interviewed Pat Rush. He used to be the lead guitarist for Johnny Winter, as, as well as Jeff Healy. Um, I just enjoy the rock star you know, sort of milieu or motif so much. She's also an actress, a television personality. And the thing that I love and the thing that my son loves is that she is co-host of Hometown Hockey on Hockey Night in Canada with our very dear friend, Ron McLean. Now, Tara, just we're talking a little bit about your childhood. And, and once again, that always fascinates me because in so many ways, when we look at ourselves or we look in the mirror, what do we see? Well, we see ourselves as little kids, right? For sure. Yeah, that that genesis, those beginnings are so incredibly important. Now I know that you came from a divorced family, mm-hmm. right? Now your parents did, did they did they separate in Montreal or was that later out east? No, they honestly they were not even uh, really together 
when I was born. They they were sort of apart and together and apart and together. So there's, I think there's probably only a year of my life where my parents were together when I was about three. But I I have no recollection of my parents as a duo, none. So they were both remarried by the time I was five. Do you think that plays out in your life at all? The separation, <laughs> the divorce, subconsciously perhaps? Oh, for sure. Not even so. so? No. Well, I mean, God, are you are you a, a psychoanalyst? What's happening here? No, I love human behavior. <laughs> um, you certainly don't have to answer the question. <laughs> no, I, I you hang out. You hang out with Ron McLean. These questions shouldn't be unusual for no, you, you know? No, they're not. I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't have anything to, to hide. Um, I mean, I'm sure it plays out in all kinds of ways, and I would really have to take a very deep, deep dive over the course of many, many, many years to get to the bottom of it all. But I can definitely yeah. tell you one way that I, I see my experience shaping me Um I can tell you the negative way. I could probably find some positives. I'm sure I can find some positives. But I, you know, my my parents divorced, and when I was 11, my dad and stepmom had my brother Ted, uh, and then when I was 13, both so my my dad and stepmom had another kid, and then my mom and stepdad had a daughter. So. By virtue of the fact that I I was the only child of my parents, but I wasn't, I, I never felt like I fit in to both family units as two separate entities. So I would say that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time feeling like a bit of a satellite kind of going between. And, you know, my, my, my poor behavior reflected it. I, I was not a, a, an easy teenager. Um, Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's it. I never felt like I really belonged. And I I think I was acting out. And, um, you know, I was was a rebel. I was out too late. And um, I was drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes at cafes. And, you know, I just, I I did what I wanted to do. And and in a way, probably felt like I had license to because I was, you know, using the rebel excuse. But so, but I, I think feeling like a bit of a satellite with no place to land might be part of my path of like I probably feel like I have something to prove everywhere, but never quite feel like I belong. Um, but I'm sure that's no different from most people. Like, I think, I think you're bit, right. I think we all have a bit of imposter syndrome kind of lurking. Yes, I think you're right, and I think there's a certain invisibility to all of us. I know that I felt like that a lot, especially when I gave up orthodoxy. As I said, my parents were orthodox Jews. And I gave that up, and um, for a long time I felt as though I didn't have a place to put myself. Mm-hmm. So we make decisions based on that. I guess what we're doing is, number one, is trying to find home, and we're trying to find the home within us. Now, the path that you took, I think was a very uh, compelling one. Um, you sort of dove into music. Mm-hmm. Later on, it, it played out as rock and roll, but in the beginning, it was very classical and operatic. Mm-hmm. So you're going from staying out late, drinking what you call a lot of coffee, smoking, <laughs> playing. I know, you know, actually, a lot of beer too. Well, yeah, I got that. I think those were between the lines. <laughs> no, I um, no, I drank a lot of coffee though. 
Oh, you did drink? Do you yeah. still, by the way? I, I, I'm actually off coffee, but I drink, I drink tea. Yeah, okay, good. So, so, so you, you, you start to get into music. Do, do you remember when you were sort of seduced by music, what brought you into it and what it did for you? Oh, God. Well, you know, I give my parents both a lot of credit. My mom listens, listens and listens and appreciates music. My dad uh, is a musician. My dad is a lawyer by trade, but was in bands as a teenager and almost had a record deal when he was like 19 and has always played and recorded music. He has a studio in his house. So, you know, it's it's always been around me. Um, but the classical path was completely, I just, I liked it. I found it, you know, I think, I don't know if it started with like taking ballet classes as a kid or if it was being in choir, probably choir. Um, but what really kind of pitched me into it was, you know, the Kiwanis festivals when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I started, you know, I, I had a good voice, I guess, probably quite thin and weak at that point, but, you know, as an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, but I started to compete in the Kiwanis music festivals, and so I would do these classical solos, and it just kind of, I, I just grew to actually love singing that type of music and using that part of my voice, and so that is what, you know, that's where I stayed uh, until university, and it was then where the the drinking and smoking <laughs> met the the opera, and the yeah. two did not, or the three, but the two lifestyles did not mix. And so that's when I kind of turned towards rock and roll, which was um, a culture much more befitting of of my uh, social set at the time. M Michael White, who taught me some. Uh voice you know Michael White of the White mm -hmm. is a Led Zeppelin covers he's a beautiful man I also interviewed him on Hot Radio I like him very much he told me that there's sort of three different voices that we have it's the upper voice the middle voice and the chest voice so operatic would come from where Tara the op was his head it's all head voice it's up so here right I was a, at the time this is this stuff right. at the time I was a a what you would call a coloratura soprano. So I was a, a high soprano, which I'm totally not anymore. But um, yeah, I didn't even, I, in fact, I didn't really know that I had a chest voice. I didn't, and like, it, I thought I couldn't sing that kind of music. And that's rock and roll. And that's rock and roll, yeah. That's rock and roll from the chest. Yeah, yeah. Can you sing us a few bars of opera? Oh my God, seriously? Yeah, Tara, just a few bars. Show us your strength and courage. <laughs> it's so loud. My daughter's going to come in here. That's okay. She'll learn from you. All right. Oh, Marie, There you go. Are you amazed that you have that voice? Oh, but it's so unrefined. First of all, that's an Italian art song. Second of yeah. all, yeah, it's so, I mean, it's neat. It's a, probably a neat party trick, but it's uh, it's very... Very unrefined at this point. Do you ever sing operatic anymore? Anywhere? No, I mean sometimes in my house. I like I was flipping through some old music books and I actually found uh, an Italian art song uh, sheet music book. So I I was, but I mean, I, and I'll do it to bug my daughter because she thinks yeah. it's like so brutal. Yeah. But not often. Maybe perhaps you can explain something to me. I I really do not go to opera. 
Um, although I completely uh, appreciate what it is because if you think about it, there's a handful of people in the world who have that talent. At, at least who are high profile. I'm sure there's people in small villages in Italy who are singing that in their shower and they sound like you. <laughs> um, but I look at it and I listen to it and like something which you see for the first time, I, I look at it and I, I, I'm really, I'm befuddled by it. Where does it come from? How do you have the ability to, for your voice to get so big and so beautiful? Um, I honestly, it's one of those things I just don't understand. I don't get it. Well, I mean, you know, I think obviously people are have God-given, I say God-given, whatever given talents. Um, you so you have to start somewhere, and I think you certainly have to have a certain tonal gift and have to have the gift of pitch. Um, but I mean, it's a hell of a lot of training, and that's exactly where I fell yeah. off. Right, like in high school, I was a big fish in a small pond, and I was pretty good for high school. But I wasn't, you know, without practicing the requisite three hours a day, I wasn't going to be good for university, and I sure as hell wasn't going to be good, good beyond that as you know a career artist. So it requires a tremendous amount of work and dedication, and regarding your voice as an instrument. And so it's just, it's got to be dedication. Yeah, you said in an interview that you weren't disciplined enough. No. Which surprised me because I look at your body of work and in order to accomplish what you've accomplished, traveling all the time across Canada and other such places and forming a very successful band, that's discipline. Yeah, but I feel like that came to me later. It came to me... Um, through a series of lessons that showed me, you know, that you, when you don't put in the work, you do not reap the benefits. Right. Like sometimes you're, sometimes I was lucky, you know, like you can, you can get by on, on talent and luck for a little while, but not in the, the long run. So my work ethic has changed. But like, you know, I've done a complete about face in that department. What is your work ethic? It's strong. It's strong. Yeah. Define it for me. What does it entail? Um, well, it's probably defined a little bit now by perfectionism, which is, you know, is uh, more of an affliction than a gift, I think. But the the good thing about it is I work harder than I have to usually. I'm an over-preparer. Um, you know, but I do think... At, you rise or fall to the level of your preparation in certain situations and particularly in TV or a live situation where so many things can go wrong. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I, but I, I, and I also really care. So I want to, you know, I want to get things right. I want to be precise. Um, but I, I definitely do as much or more, more, I do more than I have to do. That's what it looks like now. You said, too, that you've been interviewed so many times. And if you sit down with somebody who's interviewing you and they're not prepared, <laughs> they haven't done their research, and they'll say to you, Tara, tell us about your new album. Right. Right? Yes. There's a certain resentment in that versus somebody who digs, who probes, who wants to know, who studied. Absolutely. Yeah. I, right? I, I felt it was very insulting you know it's like you know this it's like it's um 
it's just it's disrespectful yes you know yes. like why set up the interview if you're not gonna to be curious and if you're not curious you're in the wrong business so so Steve Bacon said exactly this he said he said Albert, why would I do an interview with with somebody with not preparing because I'm not interested if I show that I'm doing my preparation I show that I'm doing my background uh, work I'm telling them I really want to know who you are mm -hmm. right absolutely and I mean you know for me and I, I think Ron would say the same thing is like you know interview situation you want to I want to create a space where somebody feels like they can talk about themselves comfortably that they can be themselves that they can reveal what they want to reveal um, but it is about you know really really creating a, a sort of safe container um, and not having done your homework is an immediate sense of of not of not trusting yeah. so you're already starting from a not a good place <laughs> are you a trusting person I think I give people the benefit of the doubt yeah, yeah. so you're the you're the co-host of hometown hockey together with Ron McLean mm-hmm and essentially what hometown hockey is that you travel across Canada and you go to small towns, villages, reservations. Uh, we, have been we'll on, we have been on First Nations, yeah. Which is a big deal for you and we'll talk about that. And you talk to the locals about their hockey, right? Yep. You'll bring out NHL alumni who come from these small towns, right? And it, it was pretty fascinating how you got into it because you were coming out of a music background. You were in a band. Then you went uh, solo. And at some point in time, you realized, I need to try something new. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, my bank a, account told me. <laughs> told right, me. right. Yeah. Tara, that's a very interesting place to be on. I just came out of uh, 20 years of running a nonprofit called Via Huft. It's a Jewish humanitarian organization. I was the founder, CEO, and I built it. Mm -hmm. And I stepped down as CEO, still speak and so on. But at some point, that's going to come to an end. And, and it was difficult about that. And I'm wondering if this was the case for you. You're a rock and roller. Mm -hmm. You're singing in this very successful band for a number of years. You had some uh, excellent songs. I was listening to your song, Beautiful, before. Mm -hmm. You have such a beautiful voice. Oh, thanks. God, that was it's, a kid. <laughs> it's all right. Oh, well, I don't know how much has changed, but it was very angelic. No, yes, it's, I don't. I think it's deepened now. I like it better yeah. now. But uh, thank you. I just felt it was very soothing and gentle. I enjoyed listening to it, even though there were parts of the video where it got really grovelly and a little bit heavy metal, you know. <laughs> but but it was very beautiful. Um, so yeah, so you start to realize. Oh, hold on a second. If I'm not a rock star anymore, or at least as much as I am, I was. What am I? So how was that whole transitional piece for you? Oh, gosh. it's I mean, it was hard. It's been, you know, and it, it keeps happening. So that's the thing. Got to kind of learn to, to go yeah. with the transitions. Um, that particular time, yeah, it was very difficult. And it was very difficult just to make the decision to jump into something else because I was so afraid of leaving that identity behind. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, happened, it happened then when I went from you know, a rocker or a rock star to, to TV host. Um, it, in my life, when I went from non-mother to mother, you know, there's all kinds of identities that you think you possess that you have to shed. Um, and I'm sure, you know, like 
kids in this world. No, nobody stays in one career, so I'm, I'm sure there are more transitions to come. Um, and it, and it's hard for sure. I, I really feel for for anybody who's, and I'm sure now is that, you know a lot of people are experiencing that. Um, Most definitely. But I, I think it's just about trying to be secure and have some fundamental confidence in just you know who you are as a person, what you stand for individually, and um, understand that you know whether you're whatever a rock star or a, a bus driver, it's you're still the same person. One of the challenges, of course, is that you're a woman. Mm -hmm. You said when you first started in the whole hockey world, people sort of looked at you. There's not a lot of you out there on Hockey Night in Canada or other venues. And you said, I guess that was another point, Tara, and tell me if I'm correct, where, where that alien thing sort of came in. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it's, it continues to. Um, less so, I guess, but it's still, you know, when I do the... NHL draft. I'm, I'm on the draft floor, and there's we count the women on, you know, one hand, um, and we're either, you know, there are very few female executives at yeah. those draft tables, and or scouts, whatever at the draft tables in the NHL. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's shifting, but it's shifting slowly, and I mean, I just, I know I'm qualified, so. That's all I can go with. Had there been times where you'd have to throw out your chest and stand taller than you normally would be and look someone straight in the eye, one of those tough macho NHL executive or guys, and say, hey, listen, I'm Tara Sloan. Probably. I mean, I certainly have, yeah, I have in conversations had to pro probably prove myself differently. I know my female colleagues would agree that you know, there are double standards, like, you know, if, if I say somebody's name wrong, if I mispronounce a name, I'm going to get a lot more crap about it, and a lot of it's going to be, I'm a woman who doesn't know her shit. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think it forces you to probably, it's another reason I work as hard as I do, because um, you, you just have to. I've, and I've definitely been, you know, the, the overwhelming thing for me is I have been looked past in conversations because I know that I am not respected. And that's, for me, that's really hard. Because it's not blatant, it's passive. But it's a passive form of aggression. And um, I have some, you know, I, I won't, I'm not going to name names, but I have had instances where I've, I've been at a table full of male hockey figures and I'm basically not acknowledged. How, how do you respond to that at the moment? How do you feel inside? Oh, I mean, it's, it makes me feel sick. There's not a lot I can do in the moment. I'm just going to keep on doing my job and I'm going to keep on doing my job well. Um, I, there was one memory I have of that happening with an NHL owner and I just left the table. I was like, I'm not going to... You left? Yeah. It was a social situation. I mean, it, I didn't make... I didn't storm off. I just was like, I'm going to extricate myself from this. Uh, it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. And then do you phone your husband up and tell him what's on your mind and how you feel? Sometimes. Probably not enough. 
I probably, with that? I probably, he understood, oh God, I mean, he's totally on my side. I probably internalized that. Ron probably, I, you know, in the moment I would be, I would be there with Ron, so I would have probably told him, but. So I want to talk about you and Ron. As you say, Ron is that way. I find Ron to have a very, very strong female side. I think he has, yeah, sure. I, uh, that, I don't know if I would have put it that way, but yes, yeah. I think he does. I think he's extraordinarily sensitive. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, he's extremely bright. He's a very, very hard worker. He multitasks in his own way. When I first saw the two of you on Hometown Hockey, the first thing I, I thought to myself is, who is this? Tara Sloan. Mm -hmm. And uh, how does she come to Ron McLean? Because Ron is an icon. He's huge. And he is a very, very important figure. I would argue in Canada in many ways, not only in terms of sports, because I think comments that he makes having to do with other things resonate with a lot of people. For sure. I've asked Ron, I said, Ron, you're philosophical in nature. You're extraordinarily well-read, and he's always giving me the books that he's reading, mm -hmm. you know, Russian novelists, etc., right? And he gets on an NHL panel, and he's talking with NHLers who, I wouldn't say they're not educated, but there's a certain street to them, mm -hmm. very organic in nature. Most of them have not gone to U of T and studied philosophy 101, or 201 would know next a little about Kant but there is Ron McLean quoting the greats the philosophers the historians bringing in stories from mythology and I've asked him I said Ron how does that go over are people getting it do they respect it and I think generally his response is because he's a kind-hearted human being is you know Avram some do some don't some really benefit from it and some don't but he goes I keep on doing what I'm doing because this is who I am and I would argue mm -hmm. that Ron McLean has been on Hockey Night in Canada for three plus decades and done a job that nobody else could have done and there you are there's Tara Sloan with Ron McLean <laughs> and over time I watched the two of you together because I like to watch people I like human behavior as you've heard mm -hmm. and I saw over time that there was a gentleness and there was a sweetness and both of you have the tremendous ability to hear to listen not only to one and another but the little kids who come on your show mm -hmm. the natives who are extraordinarily hurt by what's happened to them you said that you cried when you saw some natives watching an NHL game translated into Cree uh, I feel like crying now over that story but you actually witnessed it is Ron McLean a bit of a soulmate to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's for sure. I, I think that, you know, he and I um, connect kind of on a heart and like ethical level. Yes. Um, but what you speak of um, being, we were on Enoch Cree. Nation, and it was our first time being on a First Nation. Um, but we, you know, Ron and I have learned a lot about um, Indigenous Canadians through hometown hockey, I think, and, and also learned how much more we need to learn. 
Um, but you're right, that moment of seeing um, these... One, one man, Chief Wilton Little Child, was a, is a residential school survivor. And uh, for him, sport helped him survive that. And so seeing um, these incredible human beings um, hearing a, an NHL game called in their their language was uh, profound. And so I think Ron and I experienced that in, in the same way. And that sort of speaks to our connection. Like I think we were deeply touched by people and their stories and humanity. And so, you know, that's, it's probably, that was our starting point. I think, you know, I'm very fortunate that he trusted me and he, he never made me feel like I needed to grow into the job. Um, he just trusted that I could sit there beside him and, and hold my own. And he's a very generous broadcaster. He never is not proprietary about information or stuff or like this is the question I ask or this is the thing that I say. Um, and so, yeah, he's been, you know, very, he's been instrumental. I mean, I wouldn't be there were it not for him. Um, but I think, you know, we see the same thing in each other and that is a genuine curiosity, a quest for um, accessing the heart of, of people in this country and, and doing it correctly and learning. I mean, I think, you know, we're all going through a massive learning experience right now, um, you know, when it comes to white privilege, when it comes to racism, when it comes to unconscious bias. And, you know, that's like who he and I have always been. Uh, so it's part of where we meet for sure. What's ice fishing like? <laughs> You've gone on it some was... interesting expeditions on, in these small towns. Yes. Ice fishing. We went ice fishing um, on Lake Winnipeg. It was yeah. during our visit this year to uh, Pegwis First Nation. Um it was fun. I mean, I can definitely see... It's a very social thing. I mean, we did it for TV, so of course everything is completely truncated. But, um, yeah, I mean, you have these huts. They're or tents, but they're set up, like as huts. Yeah. They're warm. You have these holes, and you just kind of man the radar and see see if you can catch some fish. So, Would you hunt? No. Why? Um... You know, I mean, it's I I, I eat meat, I'm uh, so I certainly can't justify it in a sort of self righteous way. Um, eat, but fishing was hard for that that part. Of, fishing was hard for me. Catching a fish was hard for me. Me too. Because I looked that fish in the eye and saw it wriggling and suffering, and um, there is no way that I could do that with a mammal. Not a chance. Do you feel the same way about the worm that you put on the hook? <laughs> Um, perhaps less so, but I mean, but yeah, it's, it's suffering is suffering. One would think that you'd be vegan. Um, you know, I mean, there are certainly different Buddhist uh, groups that practice vegetarianism uh, or veganism. Uh, the culture that I grew up in was was not one. I mean, in, in Tibet, you know, often they they have to eat meat because there's nothing else to eat. It's like yak and yak 
whatever. Yeah. It's like you, there's nothing growing up there. Okay. Um, no, I mean there certainly are teachings that that apply in terms of of you know how you treat eating meat and the gratitude you express, um, and the karma you accumulate through eating meat. But yes, that's, so I just it's kind of how I grew up. So, but I, I agree. I I think about it a lot. I mean, I, I do think about it a lot. Would you ever go that route? Veganism, I think I would have a harder time with, although, uh, but I, I think not eating meat is, is an option down the road for me. Have you ever been on Bearskin Airlines? I have. So have I. Yeah. How was it? It was, I'm trying to remember where we were going. I feel like maybe Thompson, Manitoba. Maybe north of Winnipeg, right? Yeah. Um... Yeah, it was it was a tiny, tiny, tiny plane. Do you get scared on those planes when you go to these small towns? You know, I I get I have a lot of anxiety relating to flying, um, but it's not it's no worse on a small plane. In fact, in some ways, it's kind of better. I don't know why. Oh, why, I know do you, why do you think? Safer. Why do you think? Um, I think well, they're they're generally lower. <laughs> right. They're not like. You know, not all that room to crash. They're they're not at forty thousand feet. I don't know. There's actually like it just doesn't feel like a giant tube hurtling through space in the same way. I honestly I don't know. What are you reading nowadays? Oh gosh. I haven't well, I've been doing so much work. I have a, a new show um for Sportsnet that's being launched next week, so most of my reading right now, honestly, is on the computer, and it's related to either the interviews I'm doing, and I'm just doing, I've been doing just a ton of reading on the, what I said, like Black Lives Matter, and, and just tons of essays and articles. Um, I am listening to the audio book of uh, White Fragility, um, but I have a book here that is my intended um, book that I'm going to dig into called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, it's Untamed Will Liberate Women. <laughs> it's, it's the, Very good. one of the sales points. So anyway, it's sort of a yeah, feminist. Uh, Tara, are you a writer? I am a writer. I mean, I don't often write for fun and I don't keep a journal anymore or right now. Um, but when I write, I, I like, I enjoy the craft. What do you write? Well, I mean, often I, you know, I write, well, sometimes I write songs, sometimes I'll write just sort of, I guess you could call it poetry. Um, but I mean, I write for work, you know, like I'm going to, after we get off here, I'm going to write an opening for the show that I'm doing. Um, and I enjoy that craft. I enjoy you know, writing the words that I'm going to say aloud. It's a lot of what I do. Favorite color? <laughs> um, I'll just go with purple because... Ah, purple's the only color that has a following, by the way. Ah. There are purple people. Okay, I get it. Recipe you love to make? Oh, well, my favorite sort of comfort recipe is I, I like to make a giant... Um, curry with like every vegetable in the, in the book nice. and finally as you say we're living in difficult times this is a pandemic as we've never seen one before 
Ebola didn't come close, that's for sure. And it's a scary time to a lot of people, particularly those who are extraordinarily vulnerable to the condition. And all you have to do is talk to your friends and family or do your reading, and you'll discover very quickly that there are a lot of unknowns out there. And we're seeing human behavior such that everybody or so many people seem to be hoping that they can sort of bypass it almost. You know, go out there and not wear masks. Sure. Not self-isolate. Not stay the six, six meters away from others. There's so much in what we're seeing. And on a, on a personal level, this answers a lot of questions for me about history. Why did people not respond appropriately, wisely, logically, in really, really challenging times? I'm starting to see why. Because human nature needs its freedom. It needs to be out there, basically. What? But at the same time, Tara, I'm seeing so much kindness happening. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. People reaching out to the elderly like I've never seen before. You know, the drive-by birthday parties and drive-by bar mitzvahs. (laughs) Drive-by everything that's healthy nowadays, right? It is so heartwarming to see. So, in conclusion, what's your message to those who are listening to this show about the times in which we live and the hope and faith that we can have as we go through it? Where, Where should we draw upon our courage and bravery? Oh boy. I mean, I, I think, you know, kindness and compassion has um, never been more important. Um, it has been, I, I don't know, I, I mean, I find myself, like you, equally disheartened um, and void by what I'm, I'm seeing. You know, these are very, very troubling times in a way. Um, but also very inspiring. I I think it's always about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yes. Um, we are just so the greater we, we tend to be so protective and egocentric. Um, but if we step outside of ourselves just for one second we can start to open our hearts to other people's experiences and then you know then we can shed these this incredible need and desire to protect this identity that we've been talking about that we hold on to for dear life um but yeah i mean it's it's i find myself you know i'm just the, the racism, the systemic racism, the casual racism, um, the sexism, the xenophobia. I mean, it's just, just for one, or just an unwillingness to wear a mask, just for one second. If you took yourself outside of yourself and your desire for freedom, and you thought, you know what, the kindest thing to do in this situation is to protect somebody else. So, it, think of others. <laughs> right. I mean, God, it's like really as simple as that. Do you think know what to others. tell you? Do you know what to tell your daughter? 
you know what to teach her in these times? You know how to communicate with her about what's going on? I think it's about ongoing conversation and honesty. You know, I think like there's just no point and there's there's no way to shelter um, kids from what's happening. There's it's just too in your face now with social media and just the prevalence of everything. So it's about ongoing check-ins and honesty and um, letting her know that that this is a safe place both as a home and um, as a family you know in which to express herself uh, I want to thank you very much for being uh, on Hat Radio it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you I enjoyed it so much likewise you're fantastic and uh, Thanks. I can skip my therapy session yes feel free to call anytime you need to work something <laughs> through but I, uh, you know, one has an image of someone that they've never met yet seen very often, as we do see you on Hockey Night in Canada. And, uh, yeah, you always just look, as I said before, you look very gentle and loving and kind. And that's what I took out of this interview, and, I, and, I'm, uh, and I'm happy I did, because one never wants to get too close to their heroes, generally, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good advice. Yeah. yeah, no, I appreciate it. You've been uh, lovely to speak with. Yeah, thank you, Tara. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Hat Radio. Our guest today has been Tara Sloan, and of course, Tara Sloan is known for her rock and roll and her music. She's an actress, a television personality, and the co-host with Ron McLean of Hometown Hockey. It's been a pleasure to listen uh, to her and to talk to her. And I would ask you, please, reach out to those individuals who need your help. There are elderly who are shut-ins. There are people who are physically challenged who cannot get out. They need your help and they need you to think about them. Recognize those of you who have a beautifully blessed life, who can walk over to Metro or No Frills or any of these uh, supermarkets and the, 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 they are filled up with foods of all kinds and all sorts, that that's yours if you need it. Share that with others. You'll notice nowadays when you walk through supermarkets, there's a basket or a box which allows you to put in goods. Do it. Do it. Understand that there are families living in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and throughout this beautiful nation of ours who do not have three meals a day. I remember distinctly when I was working in the humanitarian field that someone came up to me and said, Avram, you understand that there are mothers out there making a determination as to whether they should buy winter clothing, gloves for their little girl, or whether they should buy dinner. And that always stayed with me. So see outside yourself. Give of yourself. Be generous. Be loving. Be caring. Because that, my friends, is ultimately, and we should have long and healthy lives, is what we will be remembered for. How we took care of the stranger, of the other. And of course, it's enormous, inordinately important to take care of ourselves as we do that. So be healthy, be strong, be safe. Stay inside if you need to. If you go out, wear your mask, please. Because as Tara Sloan just said, if, you're, if you don't, you're imposing upon somebody else. And you know what? They could get sick because of you or because of me. So God bless all of us. We're going to do okay. And we will because we're humankind. And we're inimitable. We have found cures for polio and other such terrible ailments. We're going to do it again. Be patient. I love you very much. Thanks for listening to Hat Radio. Take care. God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig. Sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. 
Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the heart. In the high 